Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a delightful conversation between Clay Jenkinson and David Nicandri. They talk about history, mammoths, and all number of things. The New York Times recently had an article about a mammoth excavation in Alaska, and they were able to examine the tusks to determine the age of the creature, its wanderings on the Alaskan subcontinent, when it died, what it ate, breathtaking. And the question is, would Thomas Jefferson be interested? The answer, of course. So the question was, does this connect to Jefferson? And obviously it does. Jefferson would, of course, want a live mammoth at Monticello if he could get one. He was just on the other side of the understanding of the dinosaur. We also talked about history and how it affected decisions made by the founders. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Sir, there is a push in Congress to pass legislation ensuring all citizens have a fair and equal opportunity to vote. My question for you, sir, is how important is it that citizens do have a fair and equal opportunity to vote? Can the democracy survive without it? No, of course not. Ideally, every person would be part of the legislature, real democracy, in which everyone weighs in on every public issue all of the time. But the country is too big for that. So we have a representative system instead. So instead of appearing myself in a local council or Congress, I send someone I elect to be my agent. And this is the genius of the American system. That representative or senator or governor represents the body of citizens. And the the citizens inform that person of what they intend, what their will is. And so you don't know what the people think unless they all participate by voting. In my time, it was just white males of a certain property base. In your time, it's virtually everybody who's over 18 years old in the United States. And so you have a better chance of ascertaining the will of the people in your time than we ever had in mine. And you would make a terrible mistake if you tried to preclude any uh, subset of the of the body politic from, from having its chance to, to express itself in the ballot box. You hear the fear expressed by some congressmen about voter fraud. Some people say that voting is being suppressed, and some people say that there is illegal voting going on. It seems that there must be some sort of a bipartisan effort to solve these problems and to satisfy the criticisms. The first thing you would want to ascertain is how much voter fraud actually exists. And there must be ways to determine that in your time. So is this a real issue or is this a false claim? I think that's ascertainable. If there are irregularities, if there is voter fraud, if people are voting who should not, or if there are people voting more than once and so on, then you need to figure out what mechanism you can adopt to prevent that and to, and to penalize that. And again, this is something that should be possible in your highly sophisticated era. So you should be able to first determine whether there's a significant problem here, and second, then address that problem in a, in a purely rational and programmatic way. I doubt that this turns many elections. I think you probably have a safer voting system in your time than we possibly could have had in mine, 
where things were exceedingly primitive. We had no identification means. You know, someone uh, could live his entire life uh, without an identification document of any sort. So when that person went to the polls, he would say, my name is James Madison. Uh, and the, the person at the polls either knew him or he didn't. But there was no driver's license or any of its equivalencies in my era. Again, sir, it seems to me that the only way that this can be solved to everyone's satisfaction is through a consensus position. In other words, we need leadership. We need congressmen to stand up and unified and, and make this happen. Of course. And I think this much is really worth keeping in mind. It should be in the interest of everybody, both of your major parties, every political figure, to get all of the votes of all of the people. Uh, in other words, that should be the goal, uh, that want 100% of voter participation by every eligible voter uh, in every constituency in the United States. That should be everybody's goal. There should be no dispute about that whatsoever. If there are parties of people who want to suppress the vote, who think they can only win by discouraging certain people from voting, if they want to deny the franchise to sub-portions of the population, that's not only appalling, that's, that's a direct violation of the very idea of a republic or a democracy. And so I would hope that you would all agree that every vote counts and that it was in the interests of every constituency whether it's a local county or a school board or a national election for every eligible voter to vote and to know that that vote would be counted accurately. I thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Day citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson, when he's here, is portrayed by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and we are so pleased to welcome a special guest this week, David DeCandry. Sir, welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour once again. Citizens, it's just grand to be with you once again. Thank you. I was out in David's part of the world a couple of weeks ago, and we had lunch together. It was a terrific lunch it was. It was kind of a small republic of letters. Mr. Russ Eagle of North Carolina was part of it. And we got to talking about Jefferson and prehistoric creatures, and particularly the woolly mammoth and the mastodon. Uh, Jefferson had a kind of boy's delight and zeal for the mammoth, and he actually, in his uh, list of 250 words, his vocabulary grid that he produced for Lewis so that Lewis could take down Native American languages during his travels, one of the uh, 250 words was mammoth, you know, so that Lewis was going to ask the Shoshone or the Mandan or the Clatsop, what's your word for mammoth? I doubt that he got much success from that, but it just indicates Jefferson's fascination 
with all of this. And there's news in the mammoth world. So there are two pieces of news that I want to discuss with David Nicandri, who's our enlightenment expert. Whenever we have an enlightenment question, if he's available, we go to um, Nicandri, who's the author of several important books, one recently on Captain James Cook and, uh, and two on Lewis and Clark. Uh, but this is about the sort of the larger fascination of the Enlightenment with these prehistoric creatures. The dinosaur had not yet been uh, identified. So this is just slightly pre-dinosaur era. And the mammoth represented to people like Jefferson what the Triceratops or the Tyrannosaurus rex represents to, say, a nine-year-old boy or girl today. You know, that kind of utter fascination. So here's the news. Uh, first, uh, a mammoth has been unearthed uh, in, the, in, a, in Alaska, and they have used uh, scientific uh, measurements to determine uh, its history, its wanderings, its lifespan, its diet, uh, the climate, weather, etc., from its tusks. And so this, I thought, instantly would be deeply fascinating to Jefferson and to David Nicandri. And secondly, I just saw this yesterday. Uh, there are, is a, a scientist at Harvard who says that we can do the Jurassic Park and birth a mammoth today, that if we want to, we can probably create from mammoth DNA a full, live, breathing, stomping woolly mammoth. And so I thought this is this is a perfect time to turn to David Nicandri. Uh, my friend, this has to fascinate you too. Oh, well, anything uh, involving uh, the new frontiers in science, uh, the history of climate uh, interests me particularly. That was kind of the backdrop to my book on Cook, as you know, Clay and David. And so um, uh, the climate change is, is, is also the essential backdrop to the mammoth story. So uh, I was appreciative, Clay, of your sending me these various clips, and I've, uh, I've read them as, uh, as closely as I could, and, uh, and I'm ready to engage in the dialogue. So try to explain to our, to our listeners what exactly they did and why the tusks mattered. Well, what I found interesting about the tusks is that by taking microscopic slices of these tusks, <laughs> it, was, it was truly fascinating. The scientists were able to figure out not only the age, but uh, where they had been uh, because, there were, uh, because of uh, a microscopic analysis of soil samples, what the weather had been like, what they were eating. It was like they were reading tree rings or these ice cores that different sets of scientists take, glaciologists. So think of these mammoth tusks as the equivalent of tree rings or ice cores, and they were just kind of drilling down. And, of course, there was great drama because uh, in their particular uh, 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 experimental mode, they're having to work on, which is to say, microscopically damage the, this ancient relic of antiquity. And of course, they were afraid the whole thing was going to shatter right on their laboratory table. So there was a little drama to the way to the reportage. Uh, I, I was just fascinated uh, by what I took as the tree ring and the ice core analogy. It makes me think of, of, of Jefferson, sort of one of the, my favorite ways to think about this is then and now. So then 
Jefferson was aware of the mammoth and the mastodon. And there were sites in Upper New York along the Hudson and more importantly to Jefferson at Big Bone Lick, Kentucky, just across from Cincinnati. And these were sites where mammoths had died. And because of the soil and the mud and, the, and so on, they had, they had, their, their fossils had been preserved. And when Jefferson realized that there were such fossils, he had to have some. Now, he was not the sort of person who would probably go to those places and dig himself, but he made Lewis and Clark and George Rogers Clark all of them, he convinced all of them at different times to go to Big Bone Lake, Kentucky and supervise these digs. In fact, Lewis on his way from Pittsburgh to meet Clark um, at the falls of the Ohio actually stops at Big Bone Lake and arranges for some excavation and for some bones to be sent on to Jefferson and sends Jefferson a long descriptive letter. And so when Jefferson gets these bones, you can see them actually uh, in display in the entryway at Monticello to this day. But here's what he knows, Dave. He knows that they're fossils. He can't read them beyond that. I mean, he can see maybe there's some wear on the teeth and he knows that a difference between a femur and a, and a hip bone and so on. But that's all he can do. That The only lens he has is a lens that says, this is a prehistoric creature. For whatever reason, its bones have been preserved. And, and they raise certain questions about the great chain of being, and, and they even raise the question of the possibility of extinction, something that Jefferson does not really uh, believe could be true. But that's what he had. Now flash forward to 2021, they're taking tiny little pieces of these tusks, and as you say, they're not only determining how old this creature was, but exactly what its travels were uh, in Alaska, that they can follow, they can create an itinerary of its travels and determine something about what it was eating. And so th these are lenses that are made available to us by the incredible sophistication of modern science. If Jefferson had, I mean, he could not have imagined, could he, that there would ever come a time when we would be able to take a, a, a micromillimeter of a piece of tusk and learn this sort of information from it. And if he thought that it could ever even exist, he would have been just overwhelmingly thrilled. What I find interesting uh, uh, as well, Clay, and I'm not sure the, the extent to which Jefferson and Lewis and Clark embedded this, but explorers into the 1840s were still, very, they were attuned to needing to be on the lookout for these phenomena when they presented themselves. Um, but I think the, the, perhaps the larger point it raises the question of why were people like Jefferson so interested in this? And of course, it gets to the heart of one of the major subtexts of the Enlightenment era, which was the uh, ever-increasing skepticism Enlightenment science brought to the biblical account of creation. And that is, I think, Clay, the largest possible context within which, and not exclusively, but it's a big one. I mean, how does how does how does this creation that we see around us come into being? That is the overarching context within within which these uh, this interest in fossils, or for that matter, geology, which is kind of an allied science, because at some level a fossil has become rock-like in its structure. I, I don't want to get too deep into the science of it. I'll get over my head quickly. But I think that is the larger overarching theme that informs uh, uh, 
the interest of naturalists like Jefferson then, and maybe to an extent that's what's informing the uh, discourse of modern science today as well. Uh, exactly. So let me quickly explain to our listeners uh, the what I suppose we would call the naivete of Thomas Jefferson. He believed that the world was much older than 6,000 years. He reckoned, uh, following Buffon in France, that it might even be 60,000 years old. So he comes before deep time, before geology really revealed that the earth is ancient. And he comes before Darwin. Uh, he's alive at the time of Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather, but Erasmus Darwin was just beginning to kind of knock at the door of the possibility of evolution. But Jefferson didn't understand that. And he believed that whatever we think about creation, that the creator had built everything, spun the planets, created gravitation, created thermodynamics, but he had also created all the creatures that ever were. That, In other words, Jefferson did not believe that anything once created could go extinct. Now, he had some doubts about that proposition, but he essentially believed that it would, it would somehow discredit the creator's mastery and genius if creatures blinked out. And so he actually sort of fantasized that maybe the mammoth and the mastodon are still out there somewhere. I, I think he sort of felt some skepticism about that. But, but that's one reason for the fascination, because the mammoth and the mastodon really challenged the great chain of being notion that went back all the way to Plato in the ancient Greek world. And so these are glimmerings of an intellectual revolution that's coming. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind before we go to break is that this comes just before the the discovery of dinosaurs. So Georges Cuvier, whose uh, dates are roughly the same as Jefferson, 1769 to 1832 in France, is, in, is called the father of modern paleontology, and he's the one who started to identify what we call dinosaurs, but these were unknown to someone like Thomas Jefferson. And so for Jefferson, the megalonics and the mastodon were what the Triceratops and the Tyrannosaurus rex are to us. The, the, these were these incredible, exotic, uh, prehistoric creatures that um, produced awe and somehow seemed to be like a missing link to a better understanding of exactly how the great chain of being and biology worked. Gentlemen, we need to take a short break. When we return, I have a question I'd like to pose to the two of you about how Jefferson and his peers viewed history as compared to how we do now, if that would be all right. Of course, David. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we are so pleased to be joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special guest, Mr. David Nicandri. It's always fun to listen to the two of you talk, and I don't want to put the direction of your conversation in peril here, but I, I, I do want to ask the two of you, you know, we, we have a view of history during our time. I suspect that the view of history during Jefferson's time was far different. I, I know from talking w- with the both of you that Jefferson and, and, again, his peers were all fascinated by ancient history, Tacitus, etc. But where did history fit in for them? Not just natural history, but recorded history. Did it affect their judgments, their behavior, their thoughts on the world? Well, let me just quickly start by saying that uh, people during the Enlightenment, as 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 David McHenry has said, were beginning to be very skeptical about the received tradition, particularly from the Old Testament. And there were chronologers who were trying to square Roman history and Greek history and Persian and Near Eastern history and biblical chronologies and so on, and trying to ask themselves, is the Bible a reliable historical chronological text, and the answer was increasingly not so much. And so this skepticism, which eventually shattered that paradigm uh, shortly after this period, was alive at this time. So Jefferson following Buffon is saying maybe the earth is as much as 60,000 years old. So geology is just being born as a science, being born, in fact, in Scotland. Jefferson uh, dismissed it. He said it's mere scratchings in the earth. He didn't realize that geology was going to revolutionize everything. And suddenly we're going to move from 6,000 years old to 60,000 and from 60,000 to billions, maybe 4 billion years old, or the universe 14 billion years old today. So they're just really naive and just sort of peering through a glass darkly at these future revelations. And so history for someone like Jefferson begins the way we learned it as children, you know, that um, something happened in Africa. Um, then you, you sort of jump to the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, they um, create monoculture in wheat. This produces urban life, etc. And so they really, they really pick history up at about 4,000 years B.C., and move forward into their own time, but they don't have uh, any deep understanding of how history um, interfaces with, say, biology and paleontology. But go ahead, David Nicandri. Well, I, I agree with all of that, Clay. In fact, early in the first segment, you referred to deep time, and I think we, we can create a parallelism here with the notion of deep history uh, now there's ancient deep history, which is the, which is what for bet for lack of a better way of thinking of it is geologic history or cosmological history, where we're talking about hundreds of millions or billions of years. But even in the span of time that the human species occupies, which is in our present uh, form of a state of evolution, several hundred thousand years or so, perhaps, uh, as you say, there there was a deep history to that experience. That that the people, even very well-educated people like Jefferson, Buffon, uh, others uh, of that generation, only had the vaguest sense, and and truly, Clay, I, probably not much interest at all. It was as if in their world 
time and therefore history started in the classical period with the ancient Greeks and Romans. So one other way of answering your question, David, uh, I think the biggest single difference in, in, in historiography between now and Jefferson's time is what I would call the professionalization of the craft. But in Jefferson's time, and really through to, uh, just to put it in uh, the presidential spectrum, through to uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, uh, what we would think of as just regular citizens, people who didn't think of themselves primarily as historians, were nonetheless great historians. Jefferson wrote a kind of history, Notes on Virginia. I'm pretty sure you would agree with that, Clay. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was one of the first presidents of the American Historical Association. So I think that uh, in terms of the craft of history, David, that's the single biggest difference. What's the same then and now is that historians have invariably imprinted their work with what I'll call moral direction signaling. Now, the, the, the moral signaling is different today, for example, than it would have been in Jefferson's time. But the fact that history had a moral purpose is, uh, it is, is continuous from Jefferson's time to today, although what that moral purpose is, of course, has changed dramatically. And this, of course, is a subject that you gentlemen and your several guests over the last year or so have talked about at great length. Let me allow me one follow up, if I might. I, I I think in terms of history that would have affected decision making, and you know, I go to Edward Gibbon, and I think his uh, history of the Roman Republic. I think it was the first volume was actually published in 1776. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's right. I mean, we know men like Jefferson read these works. Do you think it had an effect on them? Uh, and, and their their decision making. Oh, absolutely! The decline and fall of the Roman Empire was the first volume published in 1776. Of course, everybody read it. It's still regarded as one of the greatest books of the Enlightenment, maybe the greatest book of the 18th century. And pe people wanted to know what happened to the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic was sort of a model, with some distortion for. Uh, the American Republic, and everyone was anxious about this. Well, if the Roman Republic collapsed and it, and it produced empire and the empire produced tyranny, and that led to the collapse of the Roman Empire, will this happen to us? Are there clues that we can find in reading Gibbon or reading Tacitus or reading Livy? And so there was a deep anxiety about whether a republic has any longevity, and the founding fathers were obsessed with the Roman Republic. That's why we call our national government headquarters the capital after Rome. That's why we have a Senate, which is a Roman term. They even renamed Goose Creek in the District of Columbia the Tiber because they were so deeply uh, influenced and enamored of what they took to be the Roman Republic. So all these accounts of decline and fall uh, mattered to them greatly, and they studied them with not only um, the kind of an obsessive anxiety, but they wanted to figure out, are there things we can learn so that we can not make the same mistakes that led to the collapse of Rome? And by the way, uh, given where we are uh, on January 6th and so on, we're still asking those questions today. I'm sorry, uh, David and Kendra, you had a thought here too. Just to be a little jocular, Clay, I thought Captain Cook's travel accounts were the best read items in the 1770s. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here, here, here we go. <laughs> oh, no, well, Cook's uh, Cook's travel accounts 
I'm I'm of the persuasion of reading I've done is that Cook's travel accounts were the most popular form of literature, travel accounts generally, un- until Charles Dickens displaced them uh, in the 1850s. So uh, from what I've read and what people whose scholarship I rely on, uh, Cook was probably better read than uh, than Gibbon's History of Rome, uh, given uh, the, you know, the human taste for adventure and the exotic. Uh, that's not to say it should have been better read, but it probably was. But we've digressed uh, at... Uh, at my uh, because of my need to show off occasionally. So how do you want to get us back on track, David? I, I actually think it's my fault because I, uh, I, I I just wanted to understand how much history affected decision-making by Jefferson and, and again, and his peers. But I think what people really want to hear about is, are they going to clone a mammoth? Well, let's get to that. But first, let me say that however much I disagree with the besotted Nicandry on James Cook. Uh, his book is titled Captain Cook Rediscovered Voyaging to the Icy Latitudes, and it's a brilliant book, and I urge everyone uh, to read it. That doesn't necessarily mean that Cook was as widely read as he wants us to believe, but let's leave that aside, and let's return to this story. So just a couple more things. Going back to the Bible, So we have to understand that something that happened for us, for most of us, and certainly for the scientific and most of the intellectual community between Jefferson's death in 1826 and today, so 200 years, is that we have cut, we've severed the tether to the Bible. Uh, Historians today don't feel any anxiety about the chronology of the Old and the New Testaments. They, They don't feel that they have anything to apologize for when they produce Um, historical chronologies that are completely at odds or mostly at odds with the biblical account. But that wasn't true in Jefferson's time. The figures of the Enlightenment, some of them were were evangelical Christians, and some of them, like Jefferson, were deists, and a few were atheists at the other end of the spectrum. But they all felt anxiety about differing from the biblical accounts. And you can see it in Jefferson's own uh, redaction of the Bible, the Jefferson Bible, is his attempt to sort of rescue the historical Jesus from the parts of the Bible that he found embarrassing or irrational. And you also see it in Jefferson's accounts of uh, the, the mammoth and the mastodon and so on, that, that, that they're, they're not, they want to sever the, the tie, the tether to the, the biblical paradigm, but they're a little bit afraid to, partly because of public reaction, but they're also just sort of inherently a little bit timid about this, but subsequently uh, that tether was was severed once and for all, except in certain evangelical circles. So now let me turn, uh, David Nicandri, to this other thought. Uh, This Harvard professor, and I sent you that uh, article too, says, look, the Jurassic Park fantasy is not really a fantasy. We probably could, if we really wanted to, create a new mastodon or a mammoth. You know, whether we should is another question, but his view is we have the DNA. Um, we have the, the, we, we've learned how to um, do certain types of cloning and other generation of, of simple creatures in Petri dishes in laboratories. There is no fundamental scientific barrier to recreating a triceratops or a mammoth if we wish to. And so uh, I find that intriguing but I'm, you know, I'm guessing we want to bring in the uh, Jurassic Park uh, warning here. Beware of what you do. 
what I thought was interesting about that particular article, Clay, was the even-handedness. In other words, there wasn't over-the-top enthusiasm for, yes, let's go ahead and do that. There were cautionary voices questioning, is, is this really the right thing to do? Should we proceed? And of course, this is a theme that goes all the way back to the novel Frankenstein in the, the, what, the second decade of the 19th century. Man's manipulation of the, the, the natural order of being uh, we have now have about 200 years worth of of uh, history and experience with that. And of course, this also has a corollary theme relative to the breaking of the atom. So there's a now almost 200-year history to this discussion as well. I think having a cautious demeanor to this proposition is the appropriate thing because of the Pandora's box question. But I do want to just, if I could, Clay and David, just revert to the previous topic briefly and say that uh, uh, regarding the, 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 the distancing from the biblical account, I think that's certainly true with the Old Testament, Clay, primarily because of the creation story and mythology. That's become, uh, at, at, at best, a, a metaphor there is, however, and I'm sure you would grant this, with the New Testament, there is still, in fact, a whole body of literature and study looking for the historical Jesus and an actual chronology that is subject to analysis. So I, I would just offer that caveat. There is a slight difference in deviation regarding where these two major divisions of the Bible fall. And I just wanted to add that quick little footnote. You're absolutely right, of course, and Jefferson himself is a pioneer in this, so his Bible was an attempt to excavate the historical Jesus from what he took to be mythology, irrationality, apocalyptic matter, healings, superstitions, primitive rites, and mysticism, and he believed that by doing that, if you can, if you can find the historical Jesus, if you can rescue that teacher, that rabbi, that moral leader— you're doing a favor to Christianity because he believed, as others of the Enlightenment believed, that Christianity, with all of its mystical, apocalyptic baggage and the miracles, would not be able to survive the age of reason. And so the, Jefferson and others thought they were doing a favor to Christianity by trying to chasten it and get to the historical Jesus. Well, Schweitzer went on that line. There are people today, in fact, the Jesus group, uh, the Jesus Seminar, uh, look at all of the teachings of Jesus, all the sayings in the New Testament, and they try to sort out as best they can which are authentic and which are unlikely to be authentic. So that that quest continues. And you rightly mentioned Frankenstein, by the way, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, uh, someone who has kind of an indirect, indirect relationship with the American Enlightenment. It's called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, and it was published in 1818, and it's the first account we have of what scientists can do in the laboratory that may come back to bite you. Um, yeah. Jurassic Park is a modern version of that. And as you say, these Harvard professors are not saying, send in your, your crowdsourcing, we'll build this mammoth. They're saying, this is something that we now need to think a little bit about and ask some hard questions about. But I can assure you of this, both Davids, if Jefferson were alive today, he'd slap down his credit card and said, when can you deliver it? <laughs> In fact, Jefferson would be looking to catch a trip on one of these space shuttles that uh, uh, these uh, uh, rich fellows are sending up into space every other month, don't you think? On borrowed funds, of course. He would, he'd, he'd, <laughs> he'd get Madison to, to, to do the work to get him on that flight. Absolutely. He would be 
uh, boyish in this regard. So I just I want to go to one other theme here before we run out of time, and that's Lewis and Clark. So as I said, Cuvier, Georges Cuvier in France is really the father of the dinosaur. Jefferson doesn't even know that term. For Jefferson, the mammoth is the dinosaur. Uh, and Lewis and Clark in September of 1804 were in today's South Dakota in Gregory County, and they came upon uh, the fossils of what we now know as a plesiosaur, and they describe it. Clark describes it. Um, and Joseph Whitehouse, um, David Nicandri's um, favorite, favorite of the lesser journalists of the expedition, called it a monstrous big fish. So they saw this 45-foot fossil uh, in the banks of the Missouri River in South Dakota, and they didn't know what to make of it, and so they measured it because they're they're good Enlightenment uh, reporters and observers, and they sort of speculate a little bit. And all they can say is, huh, not quite clear what this is, but it's some kind of a monstrous fish. Well, we know from their description and from subsequent digs in South Dakota that it's a plesiosaur, but they had no way of knowing that because they hadn't yet figured out that these ancient creatures had existed not a few thousand years ago, like the Macedon and the Mammoth, but millions and millions of years ago. But that kind of reporting that Lewis and Clark did allows modern paleontologists and historians to see what they were observing and to and to fill in the dots in a way that they were unable to do so. I find that story, David Nicandri, really interesting. What I find uh, of, of equal interest there, Clay, and that is that every journalist took note of this discovery. And when every one of the known journalists for whose uh, record has come down to from posterity uh, remarks on something, you just know that that incident captured everyone's attention since everyone wrote it down. Uh, in fact, I have in front of me Patrick Gass's account of this, and it's just two sentences, if I might just read it for our listeners. Again, this is the, the 10th of uh, September, 184. Top of these bluffs, we found the skeleton or backbones of a fish, 45 feet long and petrified. Part of these bones were sent to the city of Washington. Oh, David, so much there. I want to ask you some follow-up questions on this. I love your idea that what gets written up by every single journal keeper must have been something of a phenomenon, because that's not always true. We need to take a break. When we come back, I have a series of questions. I want you to unpack that uh, short two-line statement from Patrick Gass. You're listening to a very special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Our guest, David Nicandri, formerly the executive director of the Washington State Historical Society, and yes who believes that Captain Cook was the most popular writer of the Enlightenment. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with one of our favorite guests, David Nicander, at lunch with David, really on Puget Sound just a few weeks ago, not even, and along with Russ Eagle. Uh, and we had a long discussion about Jefferson and the ancient world and so on. And then when I saw these articles, I thought we've got to get David Nicandri on to talk about that. So you were quoting from Patrick Gass, and here's my first question. He says the bones were sent on to Washington. You know the question, where are those bones? Well, I think they're at the Smithsonian, uh, but um, one of the subsets of, uh, of interesting items in that brief quote from Patrick Gass uh, is the fact that he references that these bones were sent to the city of Washington. Now, this this gets again to the dynamics of the journal because uh, that line, in fact, this whole paragraph could only have been written, or what we see of it in its modern form, had to have been written after the fact because nothing was sent back to the city of Washington until the expedition got to your country there, Mandan Hidatsa country in modern North Dakota. So that this is just one little piece of evidence to one of the uh, aspects of journal construction that you and I uh, continually have to remind some students of Lewis and Clark, which is the retrospective nature of their construction. Uh, so th that jumps out at me. But the fact that they they all not only took cognizance of this, they recognized it as a skeleton. Its length was in common. They 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 understood the concept of petrification which is organic material becoming rock-like. So there you have a two sentences from the Lewis and Clark Journal out of which you could have a, perhaps a half-hour conversation, but that's what these travel texts allow. They did not use the word fossil. They don't understand no. that, but they do understand petrification, which is interesting. Clark says of this, uh, the bones are petrified, some teeth and ribs also connected. So not only did they discover this on September 10th on the bluffs in South Dakota, but they stopped to measure it and they dug at least some parts of it up. They took them onto the keel boat. The keel boat went to the middle of North Dakota. They wintered there. Uh, they must have packed them uh, in their packing list to go to Washington, D.C. with the keel boat the following spring. And, um, and, and Gary Moulton, the editor of the journals, believes that they did eventually find their way to the Smithsonian. But remember that the Smithsonian did not exist in 1806 or 1807. So um, I'm reading an account of this in, uh, in uh, one of the great websites on Lewis and Clark, uh, the one that was uh, created by my friend, and your friend, uh, Joseph Musselman. And uh, there's a imaginative uh, recreation of the plesiosaurus that says it was the largest predator on earth. And so Lewis and Clark did not quite know what they had witnessed there, but they wisely did their work by measurement, by observation, uh, by proliferating the journal accounts, and by sending actual artifacts uh, back to Washington, D.C., were, were there collections made that, that Bone Lick in Kentucky clay refreshed our memory on that point? Yeah, so there were uh, bones drawn out, and some of them uh, wound up with Jefferson. Then Jefferson sent them around to his friends of the Enlightenment. I mean, think of the shipping costs. But Jefferson wanted other people to see them, partly to vindicate North America, because there was this whole degeneracy theory that he was combating, but also because he just thought it was cool and groovy, if I can use a couple of sort of uh, slang terms for it. He also, remember, in one of his four learned papers for the American Philosophical Society, described the megalonyx 
which he named the Great Claw, some sort of a prehistoric sloth. And he was very proud of his description of this. This is another prehistoric creature, and he had bones, had somehow gotten access to bones of the megalonyx. And so he was an active amateur paleontologist. Cuvier was also an amateur, but as you said earlier in our program today, this is the transition from the amateur like Jefferson to the professional, um, and Cuvier made that transition. Jefferson never did. And so this fascination runs very deep in Jefferson, and you just wonder, you know, at the Bismarck Airport, there is a Triceratops before you go through TSA. You just think, what would Jefferson say? You know, he would want one, of course, uh, and they've been digging them out by the thousands uh, in the Dakotas and, and in Wyoming, so he could easily have one today if he had a million dollars. What do you suppose informed Buffon's presumption that the natural fauna of uh, of of the old world, uh, the Eurasia, presumably is what he meant, was superior to North America. I mean, other than European cultural superiority, uh, what had he read, or what was informing that outlook? I've never quite understood. I've I've understood Jefferson's negative response to that, but I've never understood what was driving Buffon in that direction. I think it was early specimens that were being described by naturalists in the New World and um, and comparative uh, temperature recordings. And it was Buffon's view, and agreed, there is mystery here, but that the New World had emerged from the Noah's Flood a little bit later than the Old World, that it was cooler and moister, and that it produced uh, less um, magnificent specimens of all sorts of creatures. And, and part of this was based upon erroneous views of the Native American, David. So um, Jefferson refutes this in Notes on Virginia, and he says that Buffon and others thought that the the, the American Indian was not ardent, that the, the male of, of, of Native American tribes was not sexually ardent. And he also said their, their organs of generation, their testicles are smaller than those of European peasants. And he said that the Native Americans don't have any hair on their bodies, and all of these were signs for Buffon that the the American the indigene the American um, aborigine was a, a defective um, specimen with respect to uh, European peasantry and so on. And so Jefferson refutes this. For example, he says. Uh, well, they, you know, they actually uh, were planning, they were, uh, the natives were observing a very uh, sophisticated sense of birth control. So I wouldn't uh, extrapolate too much from that, Monsieur Buffon. And he also said, you know, it's well known that they pluck their hair with tweezers because they prefer to have um, clean faces. And so I wouldn't make too much of that, Buffon. And so Jefferson is attempting to combat all that. But I think it comes from erroneous observations of uh, deer and other animals uh, in the New World, and then these sort of um, whatever whatever was causing these observations of Native Americans. And just one last thing about this. How did Jefferson refute this? Not with a mastodon, not with a mammoth, not with a megalonyx. He refuted the degeneracy theory by having a moose sent from New Hampshire to Paris, and he had it reconstructed there, and he presented it to Buffon and said, there, there's your, what, what kind of European creature can compare with our moose? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's very well done, Clay. Thank you. I had another, uh, and maybe you might want to go in another direction, but I want to take us back to Beringia and the mammoth, because when I was reading those articles, Clay, I reflected back 
on another story or saga that we've talked about previously, I've actually personally been to Beringia. I've been to that part of Alaska and the Yukon. The, the anthropologists and people who study this area, they refer to it as the Beringian standstill because the last great period of glaciation covered almost all the way down to here, Puget Sound. I'm sure it covered into what's now North Dakota. But there was this pocket now known as Beringia in that kind of northeastern corner of Alaska, uh, the northern tip of Yukon, Northwest Territories, actually as far east as the Mackenzie River. Uh, and actually, people up there, or at least the interpreters of local history, are very conversant in Beringian history, which I would never have known, uh, having other than having taken that trip up there with my son. Uh, reading that article and the and the great uh, step, the kind of the step tundra, which just goes on for hundreds of miles, w- one could just almost imagine what these mammoths would have looked like roaming across that landscape. Of course. It's not just the mammoth who are captured in this little pocket. It's also human beings. It's brown bears or grizzly bears. They get they get isolated for 30,000 years, and they come out of the Beringian standstill as what we know of as polar bears. So this was a fascinating period, a great natural, uh, quasi-geologic, ethnographic experiment in global history uh, of which uh, 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 the, this, this, the story of the mammoth, uh, there's a lot at play up there in that part of the world. And that's also what I responded to, Clay, when you sent me those items. So in your forthcoming book about your journey to the Arctic with your son, Dominic, we will look for that. I want to just go back to what you said about climate change for a moment. Uh, we're going to see more of this. In other words, as the ice sheets recede, uh, as um, uh, the glaciers melt, Uh, we're going to find more and more specimens of the mammoth and the mastodon. uh, And this is going to have two effects. On the one hand, it's going to give us more chances to uh, study them. Um, That's all good. On the other hand, they are preserved for one reason and one reason only, which is that they've been covered for the last 15,000 years uh, by permafrost. And as we um, see the, the global ice sheets recede, they're going to be exposed, and when they're exposed, uh, most of them are going to wind up rotting. And so this is a very uh, disturbing sort of notion. I remember about 15 years ago, they found a, a full mammoth in Siberia, and they used heavy equipment to dig it out in a giant block of ice. And so you just have to imagine a you know, 30 by 50 foot block of ice in a laboratory somewhere, and they didn't know what to do with it. These were Russian scientists. And so what they did was um, they used a hair dryer and they chipped away and got close to the hide. You know, they didn't want to go too far. They didn't want to melt the ice block, but they they melted just a little piece of it and exposed the intact uh, skin on the outside of this mammoth. And I interviewed the guy who did this. He was an American scientist uh, who had participated in this. And he said when they got, they were so frightened of this project because they did not want to expose the specimen for to decay. Uh, but when he said, when we got to the, the skin, we could smell flesh. It is as if it had been in a deep freeze for 15,000 years and they could smell the flesh 
of this creature. I, that makes the hair on my arms sort of stand up. But I think I want you to reflect on what global climate change is going to mean for these sciences. We're coming to the end of what I would call the Columbian Epoch, a, a great period of time, tumultuous. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm just making an objective statement that we're, we're coming to the end of the Columbian era. That period in the broad sweep of human history that was inaugurated by uh, Columbus's putative discovery of the Western Hemisphere. Uh, uh, there are many steps along the way where, the, the, going uh, again, hearkening back to uh, Fernandez Armesto, uh, the hum humankind disseminated itself to all the corners of the world, and we've all been knitted back together into one global community, again, for better or for worse. But the great change in the climate that we're living through now is, I maintain, the next great epoch in human history. Now, that's going to play out in many dimensions. You've mentioned one, uh, competition for resources, uh, uh, flooding of uh, low-lying areas and, uh, along the world's uh, seaboards, uh, um, uh, international strife, dislocation, many of the things, quite honestly, that were the hallmark of the Columbian period. But um, uh, it, it, it see, what we're seeing with the recession of the ice, both at the South Pole and the North Pole, uh, uh, is like seeing the formation of a mountain range. I mean, we can't see the Rocky Mountains or Mount Rainier be created in one's lifetime since those took hundreds of millions of years uh, or thereabouts to, to, uh, to occur. But we're seeing with the, with, the, with, with the recession of the polar ice packs, we're seeing the equivalent of a geologic phenomenon like the creation of the Great Canyon or the Rocky Mountains it's a remarkable time to be alive. Of course, we won't see this through its end, those of us in this conversation. But we're going, again, bottom line, I think right now, this time, uh, uh, starting with this century, we're moving out of the Colombian era into a new one. That's my way of uh, characterizing what uh, climate change portends for humankind. I don't know how I feel about the Jurassic recreation of the mammoth and the mastodon. I guess I'm for it in spite of um, understanding the possibility of unintended consequences. I think that would be really something. I'm not suggesting a giant park with chain link fence and so on, but I think it would be an interesting experiment. I think that it would be something to see this creature grazing. You know, there was a paleo buffalo the saber-toothed tiger, uh, the mastodon, and the mammoth. They're not so long ago. I mean, we're, we're talking about thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands or millions of years. But I know that Jefferson would be fascinated. And I think that we now have uh, 3D imaging and 3D printing. We can get pretty close without actually using the DNA. And I, when I read the article in the New York Times about the tusk examination, David Nicandri, I thought, we are living in an extraordinary time when we have developed sophisticated methodologies and scientific instrumentation that allows us to do things like this. And uh, anyone of the Enlightenment would be thrilled to think that of the, of the possible breakthroughs that are coming. I mean, this is one small anecdote about a specimen in Alaska 
Imagine what is going to be possible thanks to this sort of instrumentation and this sort of scientific sophistication. I'll give you the last word, um, my friend David Nicandri. Well, I, I certainly agree with that, Clay. Um, one would uh, at times wish to be along for the uh, full ride, but we can only do what we can do, do in, the, in the time that's allotted to us. Uh, we simply need to um, uh, uh, treasure the, the accomplishments of the past uh, and do our best to, to move the, uh, the human project forward into time. David DeCandry, thank you. David Swenson, thank you. Uh, just truly fascinating, uh, an area of Jefferson's life that we don't give enough attention to. I remember the last time I was at Monticello in the lobby and seeing his Mastodon bones there, and I thought, what a man that you know, he's able to convince Meriwether Lewis to dig for him at Big Bone Lick. He's able to convince William Clark to do it. And he's even able to convince George Rogers Clark to do or, super, or at least superintend um, excavations at Big Bone Lick, Kentucky. Jefferson had uh, extraordinary persuasive powers to get three really remarkable men to do this work for him and go to all the trouble of shipping these things. He also offered a, a Navy pump to Charles Wilson Peel for his mastodon dig in the Hudson Valley so that he could pull up a mammoth or a mastodon then to be displayed in Peel's Museum in Philadelphia. This is the very heart of what the Enlightenment was up to. I'm so glad you could join us today. We always call on you when we have uh, Enlightenment subjects to discuss. And for all the rest of you, we'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 701- 575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.